good evening. It is with deep sadness that you and I, Irishmen and women of goodwill, have learned of the tragic events of elsewhere in the Northern Ireland. But on the day he made his broadcast, there wasn't much peace in the Catholic quarter of London. Both parts of Ireland. At 11.30 this morning, Lord Mountbatten's family, accompanied by Paul Maxwell, a 15-year-old schoolboy from nearby Enniskillen, set off from the jetty. 16 minutes later, it happened. Youths waved the tricolour defiantly from the top of a block of flats, disdaining the canisters of tear smoke sent plummeting through the sky. In broad daylight, with a ringside seat for anybody who cared to come and watch, the siege of Boxside went on. And I wish to repeat that we deplore sectarianism and intolerance in all their forms wherever they are. along the cliff path, they were keeping an eye on Lord Mountbatten's green and white boat, the Shadow Five. It was violent in the extreme and was heard across the bay two miles away. Stephen Ray, do you remember where you were and what you were doing around about 7pm on the evening of Tuesday, September the 23rd, 1980? Well, I'm assuming that's the opening night, is it? Yeah, <laughs> I was probably vomiting somewhere, you know. Really? I would say I was, you know. Um, extremely nervous, a very high-powered moment. The buzz in the Guildhall was intense. This was the premiere of Brian Friel's translations. I mean, at this stage, you, you were a well-established stage actor. Oh, yeah. I'd, um, I'd been working in London for a long time. This is my party, my way of coming home. I long wanted to start a company of my own. Why had you had to go away in the first place? What was that journey that you took? Into, well, into, I you know, started politics? in the Abbey. That was my first professional job, was in the Abbey. I mean, you're from a, a Protestant background in, in, in the North, Queen's University. So what brings you down to the Abbey? Well, I had a huge interest in a theatre that seemed to have something to say and wanted to say it to the community that it existed in. That was my first thought. A particular interest in, in the moment when 1904, after the Gaelic League was begun and there was an idea of a national theatre before there was a nation, I found all that very interesting that um, artists of the highest calibre, you know, Yeats and Singh, these were Anglo-Irish people, inverted commas, engaging with inverted commas, what's called Native Irish. So uh, it was a huge, significant moment, it seemed to me, and um, that's why I came to the Abbey. And did you find any remaining sense of that there? No. <laughs> no, I, there was no sense of purpose, no intellectual metal. The actors were dispirited, it seemed to me. Wonderful actors, though. Tremendous actors, but they were demoralised, it seemed to me. Steve, was there, was there any moment that crystallised what you, you felt about the Abbey? It was a play called The Wing of Duvesa, and it was set in Ireland in the Cromwellian period. And it was a very, very, uh, what you'd call through other kind of production, didn't really seem to have much focus. The writer, MJ Malloy, came on stage to the first night to receive the applause, and he said, I just wanted to write a play that would investigate what it was like to live behind an iron curtain. And I nearly fell off the stage that this had never been discussed. And I suppose what had happened in the period between independence and the, the time that I joined the Abbey was that Ireland really was silent in lots of ways, you know. There wasn't a huge discourse occurring. And it wasn't happening in the Abbey where it should have been most likely to happen. We're joined also by, by Kevin Whelan, who's the director of the University of Notre Dame Centre in, in Dublin. Kevin, the, the 1970s in Ireland, could you give us just a sense of what was happening in Northern Ireland, what the atmosphere was? The play translations happened in Derry, which is obviously on the border, and in some respects you could say that 1970s was, in both jurisdictions, was a, a period of intense kind of failure, because in the early 
70s with the troubles, I suppose, the provost uh, had the idea that it would be kind of a short war, over and out kind of. But by the late 1970s, it was very clear that the North was bogged down and was going kind of nowhere fast and that there was a real sense that it was descending down through these kind of Dantean circles into an ever-deepening kind of morass. And there was a real sense that it was totally kind of stuck and that nothing could move it out of the, the rancid place that it had kind of reached, right? The South had had its moment of efflorescence in the 1960s, but that came to a shuddering halt with the, the first oil crisis of 1973. And then the South entered into a kind of a, a debt spiral economically through the 1970s and into the 1980s. But it looked like the South was a, a failed state economically. Its young people were leaving in even greater numbers than they'd left under the British say, century uh, earlier. Could there have been civil war? There was a form of civil war. I think people can't remember that in 1980 it was as low as it could go almost. Nobody could find a way out of it. Nobody had the language to find the way out of it. And what Freel used to always say to me was, this is all about language, you know. This is about language. And we went out into the small towns of the north and the south <laughs> armed with nothing but language. And the great... The great high point of the play translations is the interaction between the, the English man and the Irish girl on the stage who are communicating even though they don't have a common language. Yeah, well let, let's hear that scene now. That's the scene between, um, the love scene between Maura, the girl from the village. Soft hands, a gentleman's hands. Because if you could understand me, I and Yolland, you, uh, I spend my days either thinking of you or gazing up at your house in the hope that you will appear even for a The young uh, lieutenant. Every evening you walk by yourself along Thrawbawn Every morning you wash yourself in front oh, of your tent. I would tell you how beautiful you are, curly-haired Moira. I would so like to tell you how beautiful you your are. Your arms are long and thin, and the skin on your shoulders is I very white. I would tell you... Don't stop. I know what you're saying. I would tell you how I want to be here, to live here, always with you. Always, always. Always? What is that word? Always. Yes, yes, always. You're trembling. Yes, I'm trembling because of you. I'm trembling too. I've made up my mind. Shh. I'm not going to leave here. Listen to me. I want you too, soldier. Don't stop. I know what you're saying. I want to live with you. Anywhere. Anywhere at all. Always. 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 What is that word, always? Take me away with you, George. Stephen, how did the play come about? Well, it is miraculous in the sense that Imelda Foley, who's a woman who worked in the Arts Council in Belfast, told me when I was at home once that there was some money to do a play. Did I think I'd like to do a play, you know? So I said, yeah, and I went and I visited Freel where, uh, in Moff, where he lived at the time, and he said, he's working on a, I'm working on a play, he said, and that was the play. So it is miraculous, because Freel has many, many wonderful plays. And, of course, the Field Day as a company, as a project, was kind of accidental, wasn't it? It was basically, you know, there we were, had to give ourselves a name, Freel said, what about Freel Ray? And it became Freel Day. I'm afraid it's as simple as that. And then when we included the other guys on the board, you know, we had incredible minds in there, you know, Dean and Heaney and Paul and Hammond and 
we talked about everything and out of it would emerge the, what we wanted to do. And, but I was looking, of course, for a theatre of ideas, no question. That's the kind of theatre I want to be involved in. Of course, ideas arrive rather than... You don't start with a fixed idealistic position, which was, was actually attributed to us. Everybody said, this is old, old wine in new bottles, the old wine in new bottles. It was the old nationalist wine. It wasn't at all, you know, and people failed to see that actually in translations what Freel is saying is you have to move on. You have to... Always. There's no such thing as always. You have to move on. Always. So it, always. it wasn't just in a fixed nationalist position. We come to the Guildhall. Um, what was the Guildhall? Guildhall was uh, the centre of administration in, in Derry of the Unionist Council, the dominant Unionist power. It uh, was kind of big colonial building. It wasn't numerical dominance? No, <laughs> it was the precise opposite. It was, it was run on a system of gerrymander, as we know. But by the time we came to do translations, there was now a majority council, which meant a nationalist council. And they were very, very hospitable to the idea of us doing a play there. You know, we, we made it up as we went along. People didn't do plays in Derry. A world premiere of a play by Brian Field occurred in Dublin or maybe New York. It didn't happen in Derry. So there was that. The building itself was not a theatre building. So you were making your mark on the building afresh. And we performed the play in front of the giant organ that's at the back of the... So everybody came in there, all these the local people would have a, a feeling about that building which the play was subverting. Now, local halls are all very well, but could people hear? Well, I'm telling you, it was hard. Acoustically, acoustically it was poor. Did that bother you? I didn't, li- I didn't enjoy that. You had to work very hard to make a, a play that you should hear perfectly. You had to work very hard, you know. I've had more relaxed... To go back to your original question, I've been more relaxed in the theatre. But, but uh, did it matter to you then, though, when the then unionist uh, mayor of Derry in the in the Parshire and Derry situation, Marlene Jefferson, actually led the uh, stand innovation at the end of the play? Well, you know, Marlene Jefferson is a very lovely woman. You know, um, she just she said to me, Stephen, all I care about is Derry. And that something was happening in Derry was very important to her. Now, a lot of unionist businessmen would not have brought... This is the problem with the way that we had with Derry. They didn't get the university... It went to Cool Rain. That was a few years before there was yeah, a big the, Yeah, that's what caused the civil Sighting, rights campaign. The of the, the second university in Northern yeah, Ireland. Yeah, that was the catalyst for the civil rights campaign. Um, unionist businessmen would take projects out of the city, even though they lived in Derry. But Marlene was 100% for Derry. And when she stood up at the end, I thought the evening had been rather stiff in a way, mm-hmm. as it wasn't our most relaxed performance. She stood up, and it's what I would call a Handel's Messiah moment, you know? When the monarch rose, everybody rose, and so now everybody... Um, and, you know, it, because everybody in Derry was glad that people were there just doing something positive, like putting on a play. And it has to be remembered, whatever significance we see in the play now and in the putting on... For people there, it just meant, good God... There's something positive happening in this town. Um, people at that time were hungry for plays. You know, if you took... I don't know what it's like now, but if you took a play around Ireland in those days, everybody came because if there's a show on in the local parish hall or the school, people came out, you know. Well, let's hear from Brian Friel himself now on that on that very issue. This is uh, an interview with Brian Friel from the archives from the early 1980s. Well, I think there was the, 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 the enthusiasm of the audience was almost uniform around the country, but there is, of course, a great excitement in travelling, in bringing a theatrical enterprise around uh, a country anyhow, uh, because you're bringing it very often to people who could very, very seldom see theatre, so they have a much more spontaneous and a much 
less educated in, in, in quotes uh, response to a theatre. Their, their responses are more more open and more spontaneous. Uh, and this is one of the this was really one of the um, purposes in the in the field of the enterprise was to go bring theatre to places that uh, won't have an opportunity to see good theatre. Um, that was the wonderful thing about taking a play like Translations around. Everybody, it wasn't just stuck in a ghetto in Dublin, or, you know, a theatrical cul-de-sac. It, you were out uh, finding out what audiences were feeling. And, of course, they would feel very different things in Galway, say, or than they would in Coleraine. But it was that was the, the thrill of doing that play and... Subsequent plays. How would you know what they were feeling? With it? Well, well, the, the, I mean, the extraordinary thing that that you that you felt immediately was how Freel was so completely in touch with what Nationalist Ireland thought, because the laughter was mm-hmm. the the thought was all the same, you know, different in the north, you know, in parts of the north. And I mean, you played in unionist places. Well, you tried to. You weren't always invited, mm-hmm. but when you did, um, there was a respect for the uh, undeniable beauty of the play. Uh, you couldn't but respect it, but perhaps wasn't the same involvement. Was there any hostility? Never. No, not with that play ever. No. Stephen, would you just tell us briefly the story of what happens in translations? Well, this is set in a hedge school, where the pupils, the local pupils are receiving instruction in the classics, Latin and Greek. Um, And at the same time, there's um, a British Army unit which is in the area uh, remapping the place and putting place names, putting English place names on the formerly Gaelic place names that exist. And it's it's that kind of uh, conflict that occurs between those two elements. Hmm. Your character, Owen, just to make it clear exactly his role in the play, Owen arrives, he's the son of the, of the, of the, the head school master, but he's mm. gone to Dublin, he's a fluent English speaker, he's made a bit of money, he's in the pay of the British Army, he's working as a, mm. a, a go-between, I suppose somewhat like um, the Iraqis hired by the British Army, as a go-between between... Well, it's precisely the same. It's precisely the same. When the Americans went into Iraq, I thought, well, this is just like surrender and regrant, isn't it? It's a whole... Uh, yeah. imperialist project, let's get the oil and here they got the forests. Yeah. And of course every colonial situation where there's a, a difference of language will throw that up. There has to be interlocutors between. Because it's not just that Owen is a, an interpreter, it's that he's an intellectual. He's somebody who understands the, the culture and can kind of explain it. But that's the position I think that the play ultimately comes to endorse because when you start with Owen it looks like the play is going to have a kind of a pop at him as a kind of a, a sellout and somebody who self-aggrandizing and makes money out of exploiting his own culture and who turns his back on his father and his lame brother and all of that but by the end of the play increasingly even the, the family members begin to endorse Owen's position so even the father says at the end of it we must learn those new names you know we must learn those known new names we must learn where we live we must learn where we live we must make them our own we must learn to make them our own we must make them our new home that's the but, almost but, the own position but Owen himself is retreating from that but exactly position. What, I mean what does, what does Owen do at the end of the play it's only a catalogue of names <laughs> I know what it is well because he I think he's not as um, conscious of persons as, as he appeared to be a mistake my mistake he sees the repercussions of what he's done nothing to do with us and he realises that he's destroying this culture. He goes off to join the Provost. 
basically, I'd say he does, yeah. I've got to go. I've got to see Dolty Dan Dolty. <coughs> what about? I'll be back soon. On. Take care. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we, we, we say the provers, but the, I mean, he's this, yeah. Resistance the, movement. Yeah, the Donnelly twins are really the kind the of Donnelly provost, and then they they never actually appear in the play at all. But they're off stage in the same way, perhaps as in Derry. The, you know, the the provisional movement. I know Martin McGuinness was in the audience on, on the night or whatever. But the the provisionals would have been off stage as well in in some fundamental way. You know, the the presence of that, that, and this is why the play's performance in in Derry, which had been you know a real kind of hotspot, uh, you know. That, that that actually gives the play a certain free song which it wouldn't have had if it had been performed in London or in uh, Dublin. When you've got twin orthodoxies uh, in opposition, you have to use a different method to, to discuss. And theatre can do that because it's not insisting on something. It offers a life on the stage. And it allows you to experience that and take what you can out of it. It doesn't insist... And we never did, despite what people who were our critics might have said, we never postulated one position against another. Kevin, is it a sectarian play? No. Uh, <laughs> let's rehearse those criticisms then. There's the character of Lieutenant Lancey, who's ignorant and who can't distinguish between Irish and Latin, for example. There's the character of Owen, which Stephen played, who's effectively a collaborator, who is potentially or initially conceived of as a, as a, a Queensling. Um, and then and Lancey, at the end of the play, then posits that he's going to raise the village. He becomes a kind of Cromwellian figure. If Yolland has not been found, we are all going to be evicted. Lancey has issued that order. A dictum imperatorist. Kevin Whelan. Owen in the play is... He's really the, uh, the hero of it. He's actually the one who... Even though he is in between, even though he could be seen in some ways as a, a traitor or as a, a quizzling, he is actually the one who makes possible the forward movement. And it's the it's Owen who, in one sense, um, looks like he's kind of betraying the tribe and the, the 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 fixed position. It's Owen who actually creates the possibility of movement. And in a way, you could say that Owen becomes almost, I think, the the voice of of Friel and the voice of Field there because he is saying we cannot stay locked forever within these frozen languages and these frozen political positions. Stephen Ray. I, I just think that the, the, the criticism of being sectarian was that Friel should dare to write a play about this subject at all. I mean, we have to accept that the Ordnance Survey took place. We have to accept that there was a colonial presence in this country and that it ended with uh, the Irish language being reduced. That, there's no question about that. That happened. I don't think he's wrong to draw his attention to it. What he says in it is, though... We have to think about how we deal with this now. It's no good having a situation where we're going to push the British soldiers down a bog hole, which is what happens to the Yolland. the young lieutenant. We can't, we can't live like that anymore, is what he's saying. We can't live in this fixed, orthodox position. And, and I think that lifted people's heads a bit when we did it, you know. Yeah. Stephen, your character, Owen, he was based on a figure called John O'Donovan, yeah. um, who was was possibly one of the greatest ever scholars of the Irish language. Does the play not do a huge disservice to him? I don't... I mean, was it? did it have to happen? I suppose it did. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you Kevin. think about that, Kevin. I, I mean, it's... Um, you know, I mean, in the play, Myra Hatta says, I don't want to learn Latin and Greek. I want to learn English. I'm going to America. You know, so the realities of what uh, the loss of the Irish language means is apparent in the play. The reality is there. I, how much can you? How much can you take on? How much you know? 
Yeah, well, for example, there's, there's a line where Hugh, the, the schoolmaster, is talking about a place and he, he refers to Lisnamuck. Uh, and Owen says, Lisnamuck, the fort of the pigs. It's become Swinefort. And to get to Swinefort, you pass through Greencastle and Fairhead and Strand Hill and Gorth and White Plains. They're ugly names. Is that a fair reflection of, of a great scholar of Irish and the work that he did? But O'Donovan, the crucial thing about him, and this is what Friel does catch, is that O'Donovan believed himself that there was no future for the Irish language, that it could only exist as a language which told you about the past. You couldn't live your life in early Victorian England in the Irish language at that stage. It didn't and couldn't be a language of commerce, trade, modernity, civility. And of course that's what um, O'Donovan begins to do in his work for the Ordnance Survey is to begin that translation out of the Irish into the English while trying to retain the spirit of it in the anglicised place names or whatever. And that's I think what uh, Friel responds to. So while the treatment of O'Donovan in one sense in the play is very reductive and and simplistic in some respects in relation to what uh, John O'Donovan was, it does capture this fault line or this schizophrenia which uh, seemed through O'Donovan and which of course again is a feature of colonial societies um, because he himself is a, a conflicted man and he himself didn't want his children to speak Irish and, and you know he, he says he respected it as a great thing but as something whose day had kind of gone. It was read very commonly, even in reviews at the time, it was read as historical. It was read by some as sort of sentimental history. Was that not a risk that was run in the play? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the first person who would have been aware of that was obviously Friel himself, because he produces the, the next play, Communication Court, which is a farce and which is... Yeah, uh, it's, almost it's to, a kind of an anti-translation. To debunk which is to debunk the pieties and which is kind of, you know, like, so like it wasn't as if Friel was somehow just some kind of a, a propagandist or, a, you know, a sentimentalist or somebody who was presenting this rosy picture of a, of a Gaelic kind of idol. Stephen Ray. Uh, you know, the whole colonial thing that is the North has still to be unravelled, you know, and the terrible thing for me in this so-called peace process is that you've still got the twin orthodoxies now enshrined in government. You have two elections. You have election, an election in the unionist community and an election in the nationalist community. And so there doesn't seem to be any process of ameliorating the, the, the standoff position. Kevin, that, that, that word post-colonial, it is used about field day. Just tell us what it means. It's the, the, the idea is that colonialism doesn't end uh, when uh, empire ends, as it were, that you are then left with a, a legacy which continues to inform the current uh, way that you, you live and that a colonial legacy will still be apparent in societies which have apparently emerged from imperialism. It'll still be very, very uh, present for generations uh, afterwards. But isn't, isn't there a problem with that? And that's this, that Ireland wasn't a colony. Well, now, Colin, if you believe that, you believe anything. It what wasn't a colony? It is an argument that describing Ireland as post-colonial is not appropriate because it's a very different type of colonial or imperial situation to other mm. colonies. And, uh, for example, it? it was part of the Union. Yes, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's just a name. But Ireland is a very complex situation in colonialism. And I think what is sometimes confused in the Irish situation is that, let's say, there's two types of, of colony, one of major types, let's say, one of which is kind of a settler colony. And, you know, there are aspects of a settler colony in Northern Ireland, in the, the current Unionist population who came in the 16th and, and 17th century, right? But then there's another type of colony, more akin to the Indian one, where the people themselves kind of stay, but a kind of an administrative and political superstructure is imposed on top of them. It's much easier to deal with the aftermath of an administrative colony than it is to deal with the aftermath of a settler colony, because in a settler colony, what are you going to do with the with the union? Send them all back home, you know, which was the narrow kind of 
Provo kind of uh, take on it, like Brits out. But at the same time, it's not as simple as just, you know, what often happens in administrative colonies, the paint in the post box green type nationalism. In fact, you could say that the crisis in, in modern day Ireland is precisely because we have a problem of the state. When we transitioned from British rule in this country, we changed who ran the country and we, cha- we changed the colours of the post boxes and we put a kind of a tin green veneer over the imperial kind of state. But in some respects, we never reconstructed the state itself. And that's, that's, it's that state now, that day inert, centralised, um, self-servant state. That state is what has now entered a kind of crisis in, in this phase in Ireland. And I think what Friel and um, uh, you know Stephen Ray and the others in field, but particularly Friel, what he was thinking about was kind of saying, can we imagine a cultural state? And that that cultural state then can over time release or detonate the possibility of a political state. And that goes back precisely to the, again, the idea of the Abbey Theatre, because what they were trying to do was to stage a nation culturally, which then created the possibility of a political state emerging. Now, in 2011, once again, we have a kind of a, a failed political state, or so everybody kind of tells us. And again, we need to kind of think our way out of it. And the only way we can think our way out of that is to, to do what translations did, which is to interrogate the language, the very basis of the language that we use, which seems to me to have become a very uh, humdrum, uh, clapped-out rhetoric, and people are trapped in that. Stephen, so in the face of that, where is Field Day now? Well, we still still publish. Why aren't you doing plays? We are going to do plays. You're going to do plays again? Yeah, 2013. Do you know what? No. And uh, why? I've wanted to have another go at it, but uh, I couldn't imagine getting myself into the frame of mind that, to find the energy to get the money, but somebody's offering me money. Why did you stop doing plays? I'd done an awful lot of plays, you know. For ten years we did plays. I toured Ireland for ten years, one play a year, but it took up six months of the year, and then I, I personally decided it was time that I did some more films, and I did films, and now I may do plays again. Was Brian Friel going to the Abbey with Dancing at Lunasa a big blow to Field Day? That was a big blow to any theatre company to lose a major play, of course it would be. When I say lose, we didn't have it, so we didn't lose it, but um, of course it was a blow. Was it a critical blow? Um, I already knew that I couldn't, you know, it didn't have the energy to keep on the road. You know, theatre takes an enormous amount of energy, so it came to a natural end. I think ten years is actually quite long. If you look at the golden period of the Abbey Theatre, it's actually very short. You know, any 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 theatre movement doesn't have a, a long life. Hey, Stephen, you once said of Field Day's origins that, that with what was happening in the North at the time, in the late 1970s, that you had to have a response. What about what's happening now? Well, I think theatre has to respond, but I don't know how that's going, going to work, you know. Before we responded to the Northern thing, it had been going on for 11 years, you know. I think the thing is to start to utter and see what occurs, which is what we did. It was just this kind of miracle that it was this play. The, I think the theatre has to, I just think the theatre has to be more consciously involved in uttering about the world that we're in rather than leaving it up to others. I mean, because you, you only have to listen to the election campaign now. The, the language is so debased, it's unbelievable. I think Friel is correct when he says that a political reimagination can only follow a cultural reimagination. And I think actually now that there's a tremendous moment of creativity coming, but it won't come from the the voices that we've got used to listening to over the last 20 years. I think it's going to come from the immigrant generation. And as with the Abbey Theatre moment, as with the, the Field Day moment, that reinvestigation is going to be surprising and it's going to kind of say there is another way. 
Well, uh, we've come to the end of, uh, of this programme. I'd like to thank uh, Stephen Ray and Kevin Whelan for joining me in studio. For the next programme, we'll be travelling from the stage of the Abbey to the streets of Loyalist Belfast. Uh, I'm going to be talking to the playwright Gary Mitchell, whose plays about Loyalist paramilitaries led to attacks on his home and have forced him into hiding. Join us then. <laughs>